and Michelle. One of the great things about having two services is that you get to hear awesome things like that twice. So It's a plug to come to both. Uh, would you please turn with me in your Bibles, if you have a copy, uh, to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 12 to 26 this morning. The words should also be on the screen behind me. This is Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. This is God's word to you this morning. The Apostle Paul writes this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and my hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Our great God, we are your people. We need to hear a word from you this morning. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to us, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear your word. Father, would you teach us what it is you would have us believe, how you would have us live. All of this, Father, for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen. This is the second part of Paul's greeting to the Philippian church. Last week, Pastor Dave preached the first 11 verses there in Philippians chapter 1, and Paul is greeting the Philippians, and he is gushing over them. He loves this church that he helped start. Paul loves the Philippian believers, and in these verses that we read just a second ago, Paul is going on to give them an update on himself. Last week he gushed over them, this week he's going to give an update on himself. Now he knows the Philippians might be discouraged because they've heard that he's in prison. You might be discouraged if you heard one of your pastors was in prison. You see, Paul knows that the Philippians are probably tempted to tie their joy in life 
to the circumstances that surround them, like we do. Uh, We're tempted to find our joy in our life's circumstances, whether that's comfort or relationships or money or power or pleasure or the lack of those things causing us to miss out on joy. But what Paul's doing here is he's giving us a spiritual lens, a lens that's going to let us look at our lives, that'll look at the life circumstances, and that's going to help us think about where true joy comes from. And the one thing he's going to show us is that true joy is not actually tied to our life circumstances. It's not tied to those. It's tied to who we are in Christ. And that's what Paul's reflecting on here in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. He's reflecting on who he is in Christ, and he's inviting us to look over his shoulder as he considers those things. Paul is showing us, as we look over his shoulder, what a heart that has been radically transformed by Jesus looks like. So let's look at his update. Let's let's start there at verse 12, and maybe a little background information would be helpful. Paul writes this letter, and he is under house arrest in Rome. You see, Paul had gone to Jerusalem, uh, and he had preached the gospel there, and it was not received well. Uh, I wouldn't say it was received uh, poorly. I would say it was received extremely poorly. Uh, People were very upset by what Paul preached. And so Paul was arrested for inciting a riot, and he kind of went through a number of kangaroo courts. And finally, Paul realized that he was about to be a victim of injustice. And so Paul, as a Roman citizen, did what he had a right to do. He appealed to Caesar. Uh, He appealed to the highest court, the highest authority in the land. And so Paul was placed under house arrest. Uh, and he was uh, taken from Jerusalem to Rome, and he was waiting to argue his case before Caesar. Now, house arrest, uh, we tend to think of as something uh, that would be uh, punitive, like the Paul's being punished. And there's a, there's a punishment aspect. I mean, Paul is being charged with a crime, but it's also for his protection. Uh, Paul is being kept safe until the time that he can argue his case before Caesar. We also have a different connotation, maybe, about house arrest that house arrest is kind of white-collar resort prison for white-collar crime, uh, where you get an electronic ankle bracelet and still get to watch cable and eat brunch. Uh, That house arrest is kind of really not too bad a deal. Uh, House arrest for Paul meant that he was chained uh, 24 hours a day to a member of the Roman Imperial Guard. Um, This is not a guy who smells good. This is not a guy with good hygiene, probably not a guy with great manners. Uh, He's a guy who's a a rough guy. He's a soldier. Uh, He's charged with protecting the emperor. So Paul's chained to this guy 24 hours a day, and you can imagine Paul is pretty bummed out, right? But he's not. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Paul's not bummed out, and Paul tells us why he's not bummed out. Look down there at verses uh, 13. He says, the whole imperial guard knows now that he is imprisoned for preaching the gospel of Jesus. The whole imperial guard knows, and the reason they know, you might imagine, is that Paul has had a captive audience for a long time. That's, that's every preacher's dream. Here's a guy who is tied to you. He can't go away. Another guy's going to come in in a little while and be tied to you as well. Paul is preaching the gospel like it's going out of style, and the imperial guard knows it. And there's even a hint maybe later in Philippians, Paul talks about the saints who are in Caesar's household. There's a hint that maybe even some of these men have embraced Christ in faith and been saved, and and the gospel is going forward. Paul being imprisoned is advancing the kingdom. 
And not only is it advancing the kingdom among these imperial guardsmen, but there are people in the church who have been emboldened by Paul being in prison, and they've begun to preach. Uh, They've been encouraged by Paul's example and by Paul's ministry, and they have started to preach the gospel, and more and more people are doing that. The gospel is going forward. Paul tells us that there are even people who thought that Paul would have a problem with them preaching, and so they're trying to make Paul mad, and so they're preaching the gospel ironically, I guess, or sarcastically, Um, and and they're thinking that this is going to upset Paul, and Paul doesn't care. Paul is rejoicing that Christ is being preached. He doesn't have a corner on the Jesus preaching market. He is so committed to the broader picture of what God is doing in the world that he is thrilled to death that Jesus is being preached. These verses reminded me of a video I saw maybe a couple weeks ago of Andrew Luck. He's the quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, And it was a video uh, where several defensive players in the NFL were talking about how Andrew Luck talks trash. Any of you guys see this? It's fascinating. Andrew Luck talks trash by complimenting the guys that tackle him. So he'll get sacked or he'll get knocked down or he'll get hurried up and be like, man, you guys are doing a good job out there today. That was a good hit, buddy. You really got me. Man, that one hurt. And these defensive players were talking about how much more that gets inside their head. It's so much worse than if the quarterback's getting mad. Uh, he's complimenting them. That's what Paul's doing. The very thing meant to afflict him, he's rejoicing over. Paul is confident that God is at work. You see, Pastor Dave told us last week that God is at work in the Philippian church. Well, Paul recognizes that God is not only at work there, he's at work in Paul's imprisonment. The gospel is going forward because God is at work and Paul is rejoicing at that. But that's not the only reason Paul's rejoicing. That might not even be the primary reason Paul is rejoicing. What Paul's about to do in these verses, 19 through 26, is Paul is going to completely blow up the way we think about joy. The way we think about our life, the way we think about our circumstances, and the way we think about joy, Paul is going to radically change. You see, Paul ends verse 18 and he says, Whatever is happening, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So Paul's rejoicing, but he keeps going. There's a little paragraph break there, and he says, yes, and I will rejoice. You see, Paul's not just going to rejoice over what's currently happening. Paul is confident that his rejoicing is going to keep going. It's going to happen in the future. And he goes on there in verse 19, and he talks about some reasons that he's encouraged. He's encouraged by the prayers of the Philippian saints. He's encouraged by the testimony of the Holy Spirit uh, in his own heart. Uh, He's encouraged by these things. And, and, you know, that's helpful for us because it reminds us, you know, here's Paul under house arrest, and yet he's not alone. He's not alone because God's people are praying for him. He's not alone because the Holy Spirit is ministering to him. Uh, It's helpful for us to remember that, that we're never actually alone in our life circumstances. Uh, We're never by ourselves. You see, God hasn't saved us and left us by ourselves. But God has given us one another. He's given us the church, and he's given us his very self. Uh, And that just even goes back to some of the things that, again, Pastor Dave was talking about last week. You see, in the gospel, relationships are central. God has given us 
the body of Christ. He's given us a family. And we're to come alongside one another, to bear one another's burdens, to love one another, to care for one another, to remind each other of the gospel when the gospel isn't apparent in the world around us. And even if and when the church fails you, you're still not alone. Because even if you're on a desert island by yourself, the Holy Spirit is there with you. You see, God gives us himself, and I think that's why in verse 19, the Apostle Paul describes the Holy Spirit not as the Holy Spirit, but as the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Because it's in Jesus that we see most clearly God giving us himself. You see, God has given us the Holy Spirit just as he's given us Christ. We are never alone. God is always with us. But you see, Paul is planning to rejoice not just because he's encouraged in that situation, not just because the Philippians are praying for him, not just because even the Holy Spirit is ministering to him. Paul is planning to rejoice not because he thinks the situation is going to get better either. He doesn't necessarily think that his legal troubles are going to clear up and everything's going to be smooth sailing. Paul is encouraged and Paul is planning to rejoice because of what he says in verse 20. He says that he is confident that Christ will be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. For Paul, verse 21, to live as Christ and to die is gain. To live as Christ and to die is gain. And that's it. That's the big one. That's the point. That is the source of Paul's joy. That's why he's confident that he's going to keep rejoicing, not just because of what's happening around him, but because of Christ. True joy in the Christian life is not tied to our life circumstances or the situations in which we find ourselves. True joy is found in Christ. You see, the gospel doesn't offer us optimism. It doesn't offer us pessimism. It offers us something far bigger and far better. You see, Paul is looking at his situation, and he sees that one of two things is going to happen. Paul's in prison. He's awaiting trial. One of two things is going to happen. Either one, things will go well at his trial. He'll be released, and he will have another day to serve the master he loves. That's one thing that could happen. The other thing is the trial goes poorly, Paul's sentenced to death and he's killed, and he enters into the eternal rest of his master. You see, Paul looks at his situation, he looks at his options, and all he sees is Christ. Either he gets to serve Christ one more day, or he gets to go and be with Christ. And that changes the way we think about life, it changes the way we think about death, and it completely changes the way we think about joy. And so I just want to look at those two phrases there in verse 21 and just unpack those for a few minutes. What does it mean that to live is Christ and to die is gain? So let's start off with to live is Christ. Paul explains what that means in verses 22 through 26. He says to live means he will have more opportunity to serve Christ. Look at verse 22. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. He goes on and says in verse 24, if I remain in the flesh, that's far better on your account. He'll have more opportunity to serve and to edify even the Philippian believers. 
And in verse 25 and 26, he says, if I'm released, not only do I have a chance to edify you and to serve you again, but I will have an opportunity to help you glory in Christ, to honor Christ because of what he has done for me. Uh, Paul sees an opportunity to serve. You see, he doesn't want to live to live. Paul doesn't want to live so that his life will be comfortable and better. He doesn't want to live selfishly. Paul wants to live for the good of God's people. Paul basically wants to live so he can spend more time dying. It's kind of a weird way to put it, isn't it? Paul wants to live so he can spend more time dying. I finished a book recently uh, by a guy named Nate Wilson. Uh, it's called Death by Living. Your Life is Meant to be Spent. Uh, it's one of my favorite books that I've read recently. And his whole point in this book is that um, our life is not ours to be hoarded, uh, but is ours to be spent. We spend our lives. So I'm going to read you a quote. It's, it's a little longer, but I think it's really beautiful the way he describes this. Uh, so listen here. He says this. Shall we die for ourselves or die for others? For most of us, the question is rarely posed in our final mortal moment, although there is glory when it is. Death is the finish line of the preliminary race. Shall we cross the finish line for ourselves or for others? The choice isn't waiting for us down the track. The choice is now. Death is now. The choice is here. Lay your life down. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. Your reservoir of breaths is draining away. You have hands. Blister them while you can. You have bones. Make them strain. They can carry nothing in the grave. You have lungs. Let them spill with laughter. With an average life expectancy of 78.2 years in the United States, subtracting eight hours a day for sleep, I have around 250,000 conscious hours remaining to me in which I could be smiling or scowling, rejoicing in my life, in this race, in this story, or moaning and complaining about my troubles. I can be giving my fingers, my back, my mind, my words, my breaths to my wife and my children and my neighbors, or I can grasp after the vapor and the vanity for myself, dragging my feet, afraid to die and therefore afraid to live. And like Adam, I will still die in the end. And here's the clincher. Living is the same thing as dying. Living well is the same thing as dying for others. Living well is the same thing as dying for others. I think that's what Paul's getting at here in verse 21 when he says to live is Christ. To live gives him one more day to spend his life, to offer himself, to give himself to others, to love others, to get outside himself. In our confession this morning, we confess that we're often turned in on ourselves. And the glory of the gospel is that being forgiven draws us outside of ourselves. It makes it to where we're not just slaves to our own desires and slaves to our own selfishness, but we are drawn outside of ourselves. And we are made self-forgetful in the best possible way. We are able to spend ourselves for others. 
Now, I should add a quick caveat here that spending ourselves for others and being willing to, to give ourselves doesn't mean that it's now time to run around and be busy for Jesus. That's not what this is saying. This is not saying do more, be faster, be smarter, and be busy. That's not the message here. The message is to move towards others. It changes the trajectory of our life. We move towards those in need. We move towards those we love and we give ourselves. Maybe the most palpable example of this is the way you come home from work at night. Um, You know, husbands, you come home from work, you're tired. All you want to do is go hide in your bedroom and, you know, change clothes. It takes half an hour. Um, You just want to go there. You want to sit. You want quiet. Uh, You've got a wife. You've got kids who are ready to see you, maybe, is a good way to put it. To give of yourself, to give yourself, to spend your life, means that instead of going to hide in the bedroom for a half hour, you move towards your wife. You move towards your children. You give yourself. You spend your life. That's what Paul sees here. He wants to live one more day so that he can give of himself, so that he can die well for others. So, If that's what it means to live is Christ, what does it mean for Paul to say then to die is gain? I should start by saying what Paul's not saying. Paul is not saying that death is a good thing. Now you might be confused because I just spent 10 minutes telling you guys to die better. And now I'm telling you death's not a good thing. Let me make the distinction. When I'm saying that we want to die for others, what that means is that we need to die to ourselves for others. What Paul is not saying here is that physical death is a good thing. You see the distinction? We want to die to ourselves. We want to die for others. Not that physical death is a good thing. You see, physical death is tragic. Scripture is unambiguous that it's an effect of sin. It is the curse. It is the fall. It is palpable evidence that this world is not as it was designed and made to be. Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 15 says that death is our final enemy. It's an enemy that Christ defeated on his cross and in the tomb and in his resurrection, but has not yet been destroyed. One day it will be. You see, God made us and our bodies and our souls were never meant to be separated. They were never meant to be separated. But the good news of the gospel is that God graciously preserves our souls even when our bodies die. God gives us when we die a taste of the eternal rest that will be ours after the resurrection. So please don't ever tell someone that death is a good thing, especially if they've just lost a loved one. Death is not a good thing. Death is brokenness. Death is bad. But what Paul's telling us is that it's not the worst thing anymore. Death is bad but it's not the worst thing anymore. It's not ultimate. It's not the end because Christ has defeated it in his resurrection. Uh, Pastor Dave and I were talking uh, earlier this week um, as he was going to uh, preach at his grandmother's funeral. And he was telling me about an illustration he was going to use there, uh, which I'm now shamelessly going to use here uh, and also prevent him from using it Easter. So that's kind of illustration chess. Uh, But a pastor in Philadelphia uh, with a young family, uh, his wife uh, died. And uh, a horrible time, obviously, uh, for him, uh, for his family. 
and he is driving to a funeral, driving to the funeral with his children, and apparently a truck pulls up beside them, uh, and the car falls into the shadow of the truck. And he turns to one of his children, and he says, you see that truck? I said, yeah. He said, would you rather be hit by that truck or the shadow of that truck? The kid said, well, I'd rather be hit by the shadow. And he said, that's exactly right. And that's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus was hit by the truck of death so that we only have to be hit by its shadow. So what Paul is saying to us here is that death is not the worst thing that can happen to us. You see, Paul is tired. Paul has lived hard. He has lived his life to the dregs. Paul has spent his life, he has endured persecution and hardship and pain and suffering, isolation, rejection, alienation, hostility, and he poured out his life in service to his master, to Christ, and to others. And Paul longs to enter into Christ's rest. He longs to enter into that. And in many ways, that's the goal of the Christian life. That's where we end up, is in eternity resting with Christ where Christ welcomes us home with a well-done, good, and faithful servant. And Paul wants that. Paul is ready for that rest. You see, yearning for the master's rest is not yearning to die. It's actually yearning for life. Because the master's rest is what this world was created to be. That's what Eden was created to be. It's a world of rest, a world without brokenness, a world that is the way it's supposed to be. And that rest will be ours one day, forever. But Paul was ready to enter that rest. But if this is true, this changes the way that we think about death. You see, death is an enemy, but death is an enemy that has lost his sting. One that doesn't have his best weapon. Instead of a sword, death now has a Nerf gun. You see, death is the worst thing on this earth that can happen to us, period. And the very worst thing that can happen to God's people on earth only serves to give them the master's rest for eternity. It's beautiful, isn't it? The worst thing that can happen to us gives us the master's rest for eternity. And once we're resurrected, we have it truly for all of eternity. That changes the way we think about death and it changes the way we think about dying. And I saw this most clearly uh, in the death of my grandfather a couple years ago. I, we called him Grandy. Uh, his name was Jack. Uh, Grandy was a man who, who loved Jesus, uh, who served Jesus and his people and his church and his family incredibly well uh, for 88 years. And uh, he got to 88 years and just started having multiple health problems, and his health went downhill really fast. And by God's grace, there was a two-week period of time where he was still conscious, and we had the opportunity to just be with him uh, in his dying weeks. And what was amazing to me was that this man who knew he was going to enter the rest of his master sat on his deathbed cracking jokes. It was amazing. He sat there cracking jokes. And, I mean, he, for instance, he brought my dad in there. He said, you know, Tim, come here, have a, have a seat. There are some men in the church that have had their eye on your mom for 30 or 40 years. You need to keep your eye on her once I'm gone. My dad just, my dad has no category for this. Um, at one point, he brought his wife in. Uh, her name was Marge, uh, or Nana, uh, if you ever meet her. 
uh, and Marge uh, sat down. He said, well, Marge, I guess Jesus has gone to prepare a place for me. She said, well, yeah, he has, Jack. He said, you know, I sure am going to miss you, though. She said, you know, I'm going to miss you, too. He said, well, shoot, I ought to take you with me. Grandy preached this sermon better with his dying breaths than I, than I ever could. Uh, this was a man who was ready to enter the rest of his master who understood that death had lost its sting. And so he was able to face death with a smile on his face and a laugh in his heart and with a loving family all around him. See, verse 21 paints for us a really beautiful picture of what the Christian life looks like. And what I want you to see is that this picture, to live as Christ, to die as gain, is not just helpful for us in times of uncertainty. It's not just helpful in times of illness or death, when there's a question about what our future has. That really, verse 21 is for us every day a reality. You see, every time we go to sleep, we're either going to wake up with one more day to serve the master we love, or we're going to wake up into our master's rest. We're going to either wake up with another day's worth of breath to serve and pour out our lives, or we will enter into the rest of our master for eternity. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. A life well lived, a death well died, and the joy that comes from understanding that Christ is the center of that picture. You see, Paul's life is beautiful. Paul's not writing this and just as an abstract theological treatise. Paul is writing this, and he is describing what it is that he is doing, what he's feeling, what he's experiencing, and it's beautiful. It's compelling. It's wonderful. But what I finally realized is that when I read this, I don't want to be more like Paul. I want to be more like Jesus. Because everything that is beautiful about what Paul is saying, everything that is beautiful and compelling about how Paul feels and how he is living his life, everything that's beautiful is not Paul, it's Jesus. You see, Paul's not showing us his beauty and saying, be more like me because I'm pretty awesome. He's saying, this is what Jesus looks like. You see, Jesus spent his life. He poured it out. He gave not of himself. He gave us himself. He served. He endured hardship and isolation and alienation and rejection. He was beaten. He was crucified. And he died. But death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't keep him. One pastor said Jesus drank in death and spit out victory. You see, Jesus didn't die as an example to us. He didn't die to make us more optimistic or to make us feel happy and good about ourselves. Jesus died so that we can have a joy that is bigger than our lives, a joy that is bigger than our circumstances, so that we can go to bed every night confident that we either wake up with another day to serve or we wake up into his rest. And so while we live, if that is true, we can pour ourselves out for others, for our wives or our kids or our friends or our roommates or our neighbors. We can pour ourselves out. We can give ourselves because Christ poured himself out for us. And not only that, we can lean into death. We can lean into death because Christ faced it head on. And when we do that, we show the people who live around us, we show the world around us what Jesus is like. Just like Paul shows us what Jesus is like in these verses. And one day, when we enter into our master's rest, 
We're going to find a master who doesn't welcome us begrudgingly, who doesn't accept us kind of because he feels like he has to, but we're going to find a father who delights in us because he delights in his son. For us to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that is where we find joy. Would you pray with me? Our great God, we confess that we are tempted to find our joy in the circumstances of our lives. That it's easy for us to fail to see around pain and suffering and hardship and frustration. And so we so often miss joy. But Father, we only miss the joy that you have offered. Because you have offered us joy in Christ and not in our lives. Father, would you help us to see that we either wake up with a day to serve or wake up into your rest and how beautiful and wonderful that is. Would you help us to lean into death, to give of ourselves, to give our very selves, to pour out our lives for others. Father, would you do all these things because Christ did it for us, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. At this time, we're going to call the ushers to work for our verses.